Okay, well, uh, this evening, um, I've got a kind of a jumble of notes, and I've had a jumble of notes before on Wednesday evenings, and the Lord just uh, allowed it to turn out fine, so I'm trusting that the same will uh, occur tonight. But we're going to be in uh, 1 Chronicles, the uh, fourth chapter, and uh, once I get out of my Matthew notes and into my notes for this, it might be a little bit easier. Thought I was on the right page. But as I was studying uh, <clears throat> a little bit about First Chronicles, this this book is actually First and Second Chronicles is kind of an interesting book. It's really not one that we really pay much attention to. At least I I can't say that I have. Um, and when you read it, if you're reading through the uh, Bible in its entirety, it kind of seems a little bit redundant, you know, it kind of rehashes stuff, it's a little bit of a rewrite, and, you know, I kind of wondered why uh, Chronicles was like that, but kind of put that off into the back of my mind and let that go for several years, uh, and then recently I was uh, taking a class on Old Testament, uh, well, just the Old Testament, and they spoke of uh, first and Second Chronicles, and how really this is one of the later books that was written. It's one of the last books they believe that was written in the Old Testament before the Old Testament canon essentially was uh, closed. Of course, you know there was that 400 years of silence, and then uh, Jesus, uh, well, actually John the Baptist, and then Jesus uh, came preaching. So, uh, you know, Chronicles. Uh, you know, like I said, it's believed to be that one of the last books that was written. They're not really sure who wrote it, but uh, there's some evidence that perhaps Ezra, the scribe, uh, wrote these two books. It was written, they believe, after the second temple was rebuilt. Um, so what I want you to think of is, you know, kind of the scene that Ezra is living in. This is what I think is so important when we're studying the Bible is to get an understanding of the history and the background and what the writer is living in, and that will oftentimes help us understand uh, what they are trying to communicate to us. So here's the scene. You know, after years of exile, a small remnant of Jews returned to Jerusalem. You know, the place, it's uninhabited. The walls have been torn down. The gates are burned, and the, the place is in ruins. And uh, even a generation after Nehemiah and the gang, they rebuild the walls, they rebuild the temple, the place is still nowhere near its former glory. In fact, Ezra 3.12 says that when many of the older priests and the elders saw the foundations of the second temple being laid, that they wept. And many people believe that they were weeping because they saw that this second temple, when it would be built, would not have the same grandeur that that first temple had. Now, the Bible doesn't implicitly say that, uh, but that's what many people believe, that that's what they're weeping over. You know, there may have been some at that time that was wondering if God had forgotten Israel and his promise to him. There was still outstanding promises to the nation of Israel at this time. The Messiah had not come yet. You know, God's blessing on the people of Israel had not 
come yet. And here they were at this time where they were rebuilding uh, what had been before. Uh, but uh, certainly some would have wondered if God had forgotten about Israel and forgotten about his promise. So also, you have to remember that Israel at this time was still under foreign rule. They were never allowed to have a king again. So again, a lot of those promises are saying that this Messiah would rise from the line of David. Well, if you're not allowed to have any king, certainly the people would be wondering how would the Messiah come. And in fact, Israel, you know, remained under foreign control from the time that this second temple was built to about 1948. That's the first time that they got their sovereignty back. And of course, by, you know, 1948, they were nowhere near, you know, the people uh, that, that they had been before. So, like I said, they're saying they can't have a king, the temple was just a mere shadow of what it had been. It was devoid of God's presence, you know, how the presence had filled the, uh, Solomon's temple. So how would God fulfill his promise? Certainly many were discouraged. And this is the backdrop that the chronicler, who might be Ezra, is writing against. So what does one say when you have to console, and you have to address these people. Well, he does this by retelling the story. This is why when you read Chronicles, you're like, wait a minute, this is a rehash of everything that I just read. But you have to understand, he's retelling the story with an intense focus on that pinnacle king, King David. He's reminding Israel of his genealogy, He's reminding, reminding Israel how uh, everything even started all the way back at the time of Adam. God had a plan, and his plan stretched all the way back to the very foundations of time. So even though things looked bleak, God still was in charge. God still had a plan, and he would make something of this. So he tells of David's victories and how that set up that first temple so it could be built in a time of peace. The chronicler, he, he retells David's care for the ark. He tells of his speeches, of his prayers, and of his psalm of praise. You know, then he expands out in 2 Chronicles to the 400-year history of Israel's kings, and it's just this pendulum ride back and forth, evil king, good king, evil king, good king. And he's showing that there is a difference between those who seek after God and those who forsook God. And he reminds these people that seeking God means to orient one's life towards him, an act of faith and obedience to be diligent in fulfilling the commands of the Mosaic Law, to oppose idolatry, and especially to support, to participate in that authorized worship of the temple. You know, seeking God, it meant blessing. Forsaking God, it meant defeat by foreign enemies, sickness, death, forfeiture of the land, and exile. However, in all of this, there's something that's unique 
with the chronicler. He wants these people to especially know about God's forgiveness and redemption. He's insistent all through this that Israel had sinned and they had messed up royally. And he even goes to tell of David's sin and how David had messed up. He doesn't gloss that over, but yet he wants these people to know that God is a God of forgiveness and redemption. And as uh, a lot of this came out, ESV Study Bible, I highly recommend that. It says that, you know, the chronicler here, he was pointing out that the temple now stood where David himself had repented and offered sacrifice. He's reminding the people that, you know, even though it's not the same, this is still the very spot where God or where David came before God and he repented and he received forgiveness. You know, so he wants to, the people to know that the instrument of God's forgiveness and the point at which the consequences of sin may be reversed is still there. It's still available to the people. So this message of redemption, it's really clear, and the chronicler even goes as far as to speak of the redemption of kings that in the book of Kings you didn't hear about. One of them is Rehoboam, that was uh, uh, Solomon's son, and the other was considered one of the most evil kings of Judah. i got to be careful between Judah and Israel. But the southern kingdom of Judah, his name was Manasseh. It's believed this, he was not only evil, he was so evil, they believe he's the one that killed Isaiah, the prophet. They believe that he had him put in a log, and then they sawed that thing in half with Isaiah in the middle of it. They tortured Isaiah to death. So when you read of one sawn asunder, they believe that they're speaking of Isaiah, and that was Manasseh that did that. Of course, we know that Manasseh was taken off into captivity, but the chronicler tells us that he received redemption. He repented of his sins in captivity, and he was forgiven, and he received redemption. So it's in this context of David's life the rebuilt temple, and God's promise to Israel that we find our text tonight, okay? So keep that in mind. That's what the chronicler is kind of writing about. Now, I started to uh, try to study and listen to these names so I could read them all. I'm not going to read the first uh, eight verses. It's a whole bunch of names, and probably half of them I would mess up. But just know that uh, the chronicler here is giving us an account of the sons of Judah. So if you remember, Judah was uh, one of the sons of Israel, of Jacob. Okay, and that was the main Judah, was the forefather of the tribe of Judah that Jesus would come from. So he's giving us the, the names of all of those of Judah. And we get down to the ninth verse here. And... He gives us just two verses of a little curious fact. He throws this in, and he says, Jabez was more honorable than his brothers, and his mother called his name Jabez, saying, Because I bore him in pain. 
Jabez called upon the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border, and that your hand might be with me, and that you would keep me from harm, so that it might not bring me pain. And what's the rest of that say? And God granted what he asked. Jabez, he was more honorable than his brothers. Let's, uh, let's look just briefly here at Jabez's beginnings. It said that he was named Jabez, and we see this throughout the Bible that people are given names. It's like, man, I, how, how would you like to be named some of these <laughs> names? Because a, a lot of the names in the Bible have a positive connotation. You know, they're, they're positive. They're something good. They're uh, getting us to look forward to Jesus Christ. And here this man's named Jabez because she bore him in pain. Now, we don't know if this is, uh, if this is uh, pain of childbirth. We don't know, perhaps, uh, this was a painful time for her. Maybe she, some believe she could have just lost her husband. And that this was a painful time for, her, for uh, Jabez's mother in that respect. Now, Jabez, you know, from my studies, it, you know, there, it looks like there's a little bit of argument about it, but many say that uh, if you switch the letters around a little bit, it sounds like kind of the Hebrew word for pain. For trouble. So here, Jabez, throughout his entire life, he's reminded of the pain and trouble of his mother in burying him. Now, I can imagine that if, you know, somebody had a name like this today, that, you know, they would probably be in a therapy office somewhere, and they would take them far, far back to when all this began. And they would say, you know, it's my mother's fault. She did it. She named me Jabez. Her fault. You know, Jabez certainly could have taken that road, I'm sure. You know, he could have been angry and upset. But, you know, some of the commentators, they say sometimes when we're reminded of our pain, we're also reminded of our duties as well. And we're reminded of the respect and honor that we owe to our parents in this case, and then also to God, you know, when we take that into the spiritual realm. But Jabez, he had a name that followed him for the rest of his life, one who was born in pain, one who... You know, I wonder if he was ever bad if they said, you know, you're, you're a pain in the neck. <laughs> it's in your name. You know, not was, pain was not his middle name. Pain was his first name. You know, maybe, wonder if that's where that comes from. But anyways, he didn't hold a grudge. He didn't, we don't, we don't see that he rebelled here. But rather, he took a honorable path. He took it to God. And it's interesting what he asks God. He asks God to do the opposite of what he was, essentially. 
He was, he was in pain, and he asked God, bless me, that no harm will come to me, and it will not cause me pain. Sometimes I, I think that that reminder of pain does a lot of good for us, and I think it did a lot of good for Jabez. It didn't drive him to self-pity and sorrow, but it drove him to the Lord. It drove him to take it to somebody who could do something about this. Notice he didn't go back to his mother and ask for his name to be changed. He went to God and he asked for a blessing. So again, it says he called, and he didn't just call upon any God. So when you look at the genealogy here, this is Jabez probably exists around the time of, of Caleb and Joshua at the early part of Israel's history after they had crossed over the Jordan and they were conquering the land. So he could have called on many foreign gods, right? There's many that did that type of stuff in those days, but it says that he called specifically upon the God of Israel. He knew where he needed to go, and he had a very specific prayer that he would be blessed and enlarge his borders, thinking maybe he's fighting for his land at this point in time. He's having to move the Canaanites off of it, and he's fighting for it. So enlarge his borders, and that God's hand would be with him and would keep him from harm, and that he would, that harm would not bring him any pain. God granted that. So some say that this prayer that he just prayed is a vow. It's actually like, uh, if you think back to Jacob, he made a vow to God. You know, he was there at Bethel. He actually renamed it Bethel after the experience. But he said, you know, God, if you will... Uh, be my God, and you will take care of me, and you will bring me back to this place enriched, then you will be my God, and I will serve you. You'll be the God of my children. And God did that. So this prayer that Jabez has, it, it almost sounds like a vow. Lord, if you will do this, but he doesn't give us, he doesn't end it with, then I will do this. Think about that. that there, there's two ways that this could be taken. You know, one could be that, uh, that this was just simply, it was written this way, it was said this way, it was said as a vow because this was an earnest prayer that essentially Jabez is saying, Lord, if you do not do this, I have nowhere else to turn. He's kind of like at a Peter moment there. You know, Peter's asking Jesus, you know, if we're not to follow you, then Lord, where else should we go? Who else can we follow? What will we do? And Jabez is perhaps at that way, at that in his life, Lord, if you don't do this for me, what will I do? So it could just be that this is in the form of a vow because it's an earnest prayer. The other thing I thought was inter interesting 
was that perhaps it's in the form of a vow without a promise because he's giving God a blank check in, in a sense. Lord, if you'll do these three or four things for me, you can ask of me whatever, and I'll do it. Either one, I think, I think is, uh, is a good way of thinking of this, but, you know, I, I thought that that was so interesting. Here we have this vow, this prayer that has no ending. And what does that mean? Whatever it means is, either way, Jabez is looking solely to God for his help. So, we see, one of the things I think we see in this that stood out to me, I'm going to see if I can find my notes, but one of the main things was that something born in pain can still turn out to be a blessing. You know, there was pain in Jabez's birth, but yet there was a great blessing by the end of his life. You know, likewise, you know, the way that something starts out, it's not necessarily how it's always going to end up. And what was the difference in both of these instances? The only thing that made the difference was the God of Israel, right? That was the only intervening factor in this prayer. That's the only thing that got Jabez from point A to point B where he wanted to go. I thought it was interesting, Matthew Henry, he says that perhaps this prayer was written down in this way and it was saved for us Because if you can think of Jabez from the time he was a young man till the time he was an old man, every time he got up to pray or every time he got up to testify, this was his prayer. And this was his testimony. That this was how he lived his life. He was expanding his borders. He was looking for the hand of the Lord to help him. And by the hand of the Lord, that's just a saying in the Old Testament that's speaking of the the power and the providence and the help that someone receives from the Lord. Sometimes the hand of the Lord was against people, as we know in, in the Old Testament. But here, Jabez, the hand of the Lord was for Jabez. It was helping him and keeping him so that all those hurts of life did not bring pain upon him. You know, I I was looking at these prayers and I said, you know, one of them, it seemed to be, you know, a prayer for courage. Bless me and enlarge my borders. He had to go fight to enlarge those borders. A prayer for courage. He wanted the Lord's hand to be with him as a prayer for strength that he lacked. And then keep me from harm so that it might not bring me pain. It was a prayer for protection that he did not deserve. He was asking for courage that he did not have, a strength that he lacked, and for protection that he did not deserve. And was God lax in giving that to him? 
No, it says the Lord answered that prayer. We don't know how he answered that prayer specifically, but I like to think that Jabez went and said that prayer so many times that the kids knew it so well, the whole congregation knew it so well that when Ezra heard it, he he had to put these two verses in there because he wanted to tell us about Jabez, who despite all the pain and the trouble of his beginning, turned to God so that things would turn out right in the end. And isn't that true for every one of us? I mean, I've heard most of the people in this auditorium tonight tell of the courage that God had given them, the strength that God had given them, the protection that they did not deserve, and have told of how they're... We're not even to the end yet. We're in the maybe the middle, maybe close to the end. I don't know. But our... Our point in life right now is different than it was in the beginning. Sure. You know, now I <clears throat> want to take this, and now I'm kind of going, I guess, off script. I, I wrote several pages today. I'm not going to go through that. But, you know, we can take this story into the life of this church. And, you know, I, sometimes I, you know, we have a, a lot of concern. I think we're like those Israelites. You know, we're looking at the changes outside of these walls and inside of these walls, and we say, how in the world is God going to act? What is God going to do? Does God still care about us? You know? <laughs> I think we're in that same situation. But we can do what Jabez did. And I'm I'm glad that we've we've got a prayer meeting going. We've got a lot of stuff that's that's going right now, a lot of good things that's going on. And as I I just I want everybody to know that what's going on here, and maybe you if you're you know if you're out of the workforce, maybe you don't understand know this, but those of us that are probably in that about 35 to 50 year age range that are in the workforce right now, know that the Church of God of Licking County is not the only place that is in a turnover right now, in a state of flux and change. This is what we see in the workforce. This is what many churches, I've I've heard many churches are going through this right now. We're one of just three Church of God congregations right now that doesn't have a pastor. Pastors are not easy to find. You know, we found that out. They're not. But the Lord will still provide. He will still take care of us, and we still have a work to do. And this is going to be... Be even, and I, I don't think we should get to the point where we think that we get a pastor and all will be done and fine. There's still going to be work to do, okay? So, and the reason for that is that we're going through what, what they call, it's not just, a, not just a transition, it's a generational turnover. 
And I've been seeing this coming at work. I've worked you know, very close with the human resources department at two large factories and two large companies now. In both places, I saw it. And you know, a lot of times we can look at this as a very negative thing. Because you know, these young people coming in, they, they, don't, they don't have the same skill set. They don't have the same understanding. They don't have, you know, we can look at all the things that they do not have, and that's true. You know, I think that this generation that's coming up is much different than preceding generations. They're really the first generation that uh, was raised completely on electronics, that was completely raised with information at their fingertips. Uh, they, they speak slightly a, a different language. They interact with the world in slightly a different way. You know, and employers are struggling with this, and I think churches are also struggling with this. But think about what these people in the Chronicles, in the time of the Chronicler, I should say, were going through. They didn't have that temple to worship any at, like they did before. They did not have kings to lead them like they did before. But did we get from the Old Testament to the New Testament? Yes. God was still on the throne. God took care of that. And I think that's the message for us today. God will take care of us. He's still on the throne. And things will be okay. And this is really, this is a time of opportunity. You know, I, I think that this is a time that we're, you know, people are going to have to step up and, and help and do things that maybe they wouldn't have done before. And new people will come into the congregation that, and the Lord will bring them, that will step up, and they're going to do things that, that we maybe haven't done before. One of the things I, I would love, I'm glad we're doing is we're bringing in, on Wednesday nights, we're bringing in some of those organizations that we have been giving money to for years and maybe don't know what they're doing. <laughs> we might want to support them more. We may want to shift our support somewhere else. But I, I look forward to what we can do to reach people, and I'm telling you, as I drove by the Christian Life Center uh, this morning, or this, this evening, sorry, as I drove by there, their parking lot's full, totally jam-packed. It is on Saturday, it is on Sunday. So what I want to tell you is there is not a lack of people who want to hear the gospel. There's not a lack of people who the message of redemption and forgiveness through Jesus Christ does not appeal to. There's not. It's now going to be up to us to go out there and reach out with a, with a good attitude, with a good testimony, with love, kindness, reaching out to these people. And we, we, just a beautiful opportunity just plopped right in our lap, right there with, with uh, LifeWise. You know, I'm not saying that's the only thing that this church should do, but I'm, I'm saying just an opportunity, if, if anything, to, 
help sponsor that. And those are all just small ways. And I think the Lord, as, as we're faithful in those little things and helping and doing those little things, he's going to give more is going to come. More is going to come. That's why the Christian Life Center is growing, and, and you've got other churches that are growing. Because one of the things I thought was so neat, my wife, um, you know, I, I've talked about it in prayer meeting. You don't know, if you haven't been in prayer meeting or you haven't talked to my wife, you just don't know what these school teachers go through. Unless you are a school teacher or you're a school employee. It's sad what's going on in our schools and everything. And I thought it was so neat. Somebody came up with it. Somebody at a church came up with this idea in, in this community. And my wife and the teachers, they got to school. And somebody had gotten up earlier than them and had got there before them and had just delivered a big box of bagels and, and uh, I think it's bagels and cream cheese and coffee and muffins. And they said, you know, teachers at such and such elementary school and staff, we love you, we appreciate you, we appreciate the work that you're doing. And it was such and such church. That was it. Just one act of kindness. But do you want to know what all those staff members talked about all that day, even though they had a bad day? <laughs> hey, that was really nice. We got our coffee and bagels. And, uh, you know, my wife even sent me a little picture of it. You know, there's no limit to what this church and this people can do. There's, there's really no limit. The Lord will allow us to reach out into this community as much as we're willing to reach out. And we have some wonderful, uh, you know, wonderful uh, mission work, I guess. It's already kind of being done. I look at Brother Gayhart. I think of, you know, the missions that we support. I think of the, uh, the Flint Ridge Nursing Home. Those people love to hear people come and sing for them. They, they really do. I sing my best for them, but I'm, I'm just one singer. So, you know, we, we've got all kinds of ways to reach out. But I do believe wholeheartedly that though we're going through pain now, that we, the Lord will deliver us out on the other side in a good place. Wholeheartedly believe that. We just got to put our faith, we got to put our trust in Him. You know, there's, you know, still, still a, lot of, a lot of growth for us, too. You know, it takes both the rain and the shine to make things grow, right? I see some gardeners over there. I, I see they're shaking their head. It takes both the rain and the shine. Maybe we're having a little bit of rain, but that's okay. That'll bring the sun. All right. We can be like Jabez. Let's pray, and, and then we'll uh, be dismissed. Heavenly Father, I just do thank you for this... Uh, word of encouragement tonight, Lord, from Jabez. And I can just think of how easy it would have been to overlook this man's life and not just put these two verses in there, but Lord, I just imagine that he made such an impact on his community, even in that time that hundreds of years later, his name was still uh, remembered as a man who put his trust in you. 
Lord, it is my desire, and I believe many people's desires here, to see the Church of God of Licking County be known as a church that puts their trust in you, that uh, has patience, kindness, love, understanding, and most importantly, the gospel for this world. Lord, we look out uh, in our workplaces, in our families, we look out into our community, and we see a lot of hurt. We see a lot of dire situations, and I just pray that you would uh, help us to find ways to uh, relieve those situations. Lord, I pray for unity, and I pray for kindness and goodness, uh, you know, even in the walls of this church, Lord. I pray that you give us patience, give us strength, give us courage. Lord, give us that protection that we don't deserve, just as Jabez prayed. Lord, give that to us as a congregation. God, we just put our faith, we put our trust in you, and we know that you will carry us on to greater things, Lord. And we're thankful for that, and we just ask that you do this in Jesus' name.